cash splash, the Albanese government's first May budget takes on cost of living and the deficit. This is an economic empowerment move, so it is a big step for those families. King crowned. Australians have watched the first British coronation in over seven decades. Australia needs to, and I think is undergoing, a reassessment of the British Crown and Australian history. And take out the trash. A landmark study finds bacteria hungry for your old plastics. But we feel strongly that there are already mechanisms in place. Reduce, reuse, recycle whenever possible. Hear all the details from Sin Media's news team later this hour. Good afternoon. You're listening to On The Beat, wrapping this week's biggest news. I'm V. And I'm Nick, broadcasting from Sin's Melbourne studios based in the Eastern Kulin Nation. We'd like to respectfully acknowledge the Wurundjeri people whose land we're reporting on today. Womanjika, and welcome to the program, and thanks for your company. We've got a lot of news to come. This week's federal budget posed a challenge for the government. It's caught between low-income earners struggling with record-high inflation and a mountain of debt marking the legacy of record-high spending. Dr Debajoti Chakrabarti has been researching the impacts of income inequality on health and says Australia's most marginalised people need support now. Well, we have already uh, heard announcements about a few things. So, for instance, uh, the salaries of aged care workers are going to go up. Uh, Just yesterday, we heard that there will be uh, relief towards uh, energy bills for uh, selected households, households that are on uh, government income support. Uh, There will be some help for medical bills as well. So um, these are all, you know, uh, small steps, but in the right direction. Uh, However, um, as you know, that uh, the the economy is in a little bit of a tricky situation because we have very high inflation. So the government is kind of constrained in that regard. It doesn't want to, it doesn't want Australians to spend a lot of money because that will the inflation further and that might force the Reserve Bank's hand to raise the interest rates. Yeah, so I guess that's the risk, isn't it? The more kind of income support you're giving to those lower-income Australians, the more they're then going out and spending it in the economy, which is quite overheated right now. Yes, that's the conundrum. So basically, on one hand, uh, the government doesn't want you to spend a lot of money, but on the other hand, they have to help out the vulnerable households in spending the bare essentials, you know, like some things that you can't cut down on. Mm, So I guess what, what should they be considering when I guess they're trying to strike that really, really um, sensitive balance there? Essentially, those people who are at who are most vulnerable, especially, you know, people on job seeker or parenting payments or other types of government income support, uh, they, they are struggling because uh, they're facing huge increases in the necessities, you know, like rental, uh, rental, uh, you know, the cost of rent, uh, the electricity bills. Uh, the, these are some things that you cannot uh, avoid. So the budget has to cater to those households who are doing it really tough. But at the same time, uh, probably we won't see much for uh, people who are on higher incomes and, or, uh, you know, because the government doesn't want to boost uh, spending. I guess in your kind of line of work and your research where you are speaking with those people who are now facing some very tough choices, you've said that there are things like bills, electricity that they can't cut back on. What happens when they don't have that support? How do they, how do they make their own household budget work? 
Well, we have seen instances where people don't switch on their uh, their light in the evening. They just have this one bulb on. Or this, I've seen uh, just yesterday I saw a program on ABC where there are people who don't take hot showers. And so this is really sad to see, but uh, that is the extent to which people are hurting. So it's really difficult. Hmm. Uh, I've also seen cases where people are just buying frozen foods because they can't afford uh, to buy you know, fresh chicken or fresh vegetables. I would like to talk about the inflation rate because that is something that you know is creating a lot of this pressure. We see this headline number of there's 7% inflation, but the actual mm-hmm. underlying figures, there's you know certain sectors that are deflating and certain sectors that are inflating. Can you kind of talk us through a little bit about how what what does inflation actually look like and how is it impacting our most vulnerable? You see, the inflation rate is calculated by the increase in price of the consumer price index, the CPI. And it consists of a range of goods. Uh, it consists of uh, your housing, your rental costs, your electricity, food, uh, entertainment, uh, maybe uh, some other types of goods. Now, uh, the, um, uh, the, the inflation rate that we see reported is a kind of like an average of all these. So it, it's possible that there are some things, uh, the prices are going up much more, uh, which doesn't get reflected in the uh, CPI numbers. But And there are some things which the prices are actually falling. So what we see in the inflation rate is the overall, the average of that inflation. But there are certain commodities which are essential, which households can't cut back on. And their prices could be going up even further. So, for instance, rental prices have gone up much more than what we see in the official inflation rate. Tackling the inflation rate, that's been a really key mission of the Reserve Bank, and that's led them to raise interest rates a record 11 times in the space of a year. So, first of all, how does that impact um, people on lower incomes? Well, uh, if you are... uh a household who has a large um, mortgage out, it immediately affects your uh, mortgage repayment because if you are on a variable rate, then the banks will be increasing their interest rate on your mortgage and then you will be paying more uh, to return that loan. Uh, If it has an indirect effect as well because if you are renting, it's possible, it's quite possible that uh, the owner of your apartment or the house has taken out a loan. And so because he or she has to now repay a higher mortgage payment, they will be increasing your rents to repay rent. Um, It also makes borrowing more expensive generally because the interest rates, the Reserve Bank's interest rate gets reflected very quickly in almost all other interest rates. So uh, it's it's a very blunt tool because it affects almost everybody, small businesses, um, households directly or indirectly. And so, um, yeah, it, it makes uh, things more difficult for uh, lower income households, especially because they have very little leeway in their budget anyway. With that increased cost of borrowing there, are you seeing more people turning to those interest-free buy now, pay later type services? They, they will be looking at options available for them where uh, they can possibly pay them pay for their purchases a little later. 
they could be using the credit cards more. Um, but again, it's a double-edged sword because the credit card interest rates will also be going up. So. The biggest borrower in Australia has historically been the federal government. We have a uh, federal uh, debt of over a trillion dollars and the government is very keen this year to try and run mm-hmm. a surplus instead of a deficit. So what impact is our is our total debt, first of all, having on the spending options available to the federal government? Well, our debt uh, has probably not hit a trillion dollars yet. It's likely to be a little lower uh, because the government has uh, received a, a bit of a revenue boost from the resource sector and because of uh, income tax revenues and uh, if there has been a, a silver lining to this whole thing is that we have very strong job markets right now. So the government uh, that is probably a, is hovering around 900 billion, but still the interest costs are considerable. I, I mean, uh, and so um, yeah, the government would be keen to get the debt down uh, because it is now I think the fastest growing component of the budget and. Uh, I saw an article which said something like we are paying $60 million an hour or something like that on interest. So, yeah, they would be very keen to keep uh, the deficit down as much as possible. I'm not sure whether we will be in surplus exactly because it all depends on what the government decides finally in its budget. That was researcher Dr. Deborah Jyoti Chakrabarti. Catch a full interview on the Represent podcast. So what was in the Albanese government's first full-year federal budget? A $14.6 billion cost-of-living relief package took centre stage in the Treasurer Jim Chalmers' speech on Tuesday night. Chalmers also announced the first surplus in 15 years, but opposition leader Peter Dutton says that this was his government's win. Frankly, I think if they're being gracious, uh, they should acknowledge that they inherited a pretty good set of figures. They've obviously had a surge of income uh, and they've spent some of that wisely, but there's a lot of extra taxing and lots of extra spending, which is going to be inflationary. And as Chris Richardson points out, he thought the Reserve Bank governor had already finished with the baseball bat, but he thinks that there is likely another interest rate increase out of this. So I worry for those families who are missing out and who are really hurting at the moment. The predicted surplus came alongside a suite of measures targeting a rise in cost of living. Taylor Oates reports. We're getting a lot of early updates from the governments and their different departments. The centrepiece of this budget will be a $14 billion billion package on cost of living relief, which is just like a big sigh for a lot of people, as we definitely have been struggling with the cost of living, especially in Victoria and especially in Australia. This is also very exciting because this morning it was announced that this will be the first budget in 15 years to be in surplus. The reason why we're in a surplus is because our exports are really high and we have a low unemployment rate. It's also the first labour surplus in 35 years, which is a long time. Let's talk more about the cost of living relief. So it's actually $14.6 billion going towards this package. It will be for all ages, all genders. There will be new measures in place to add anti-poverty advocates um, and the government will be implementing a board to rise the job seeker rate. We've also got... um, We've got a power bill package, which basically won't be going to the people like previous power saving bonuses. It'll actually be going straight to the utility. And so the utility essentially will be paid off by the government to give us cheaper energy bills. 
we've also got a 15% pay rise for aged care workers in line with the Fair Work Acts Commission. So this will be $9 billion out of the budget will go towards childcare and aged care workers. Something on a little nerdy, nerdy science note is there's been a new net zero authority, a governmental authority that will be created on July 1st and they'll be able to like create actions to help Australians reach the Paris Agreement goals, which is net zero by 50-50. That was Taylor Oates for Represent, airing 5pm Tuesdays on SIN. The budget's cost-of-living package includes a long-awaited proposal to expand access to the single-parent payment. Sole carers with a youngest child over eight years old currently shift to the lower job-seeker payment. But the government intends to lift the cap to 14 from late September, a move welcomed by Melbourne MP Zoe Daniel on Sky News. This is an economic empowerment move. This is to do with lifting up those largely single women who have children, uh, many of whom have fled domestic violence. 60% of uh, female single parents in Australia have fled domestic violence. So my concern was that we were creating a situation where they had to choose between violence or poverty and also that their children were then being subjected to either violence or intergenerational poverty. So it is a big step for those families. The change puts more than $12 a day in the pockets of single parents with children who've aged out of the higher payment. Declan Evan reports. The cutoff is now 14 years of age for children, as it used to be eight. So that's the age that children can start working. So this is helping single parents with the cost of living, as the cost of living package is $14.6 billion, which is costing the government that amount. This is like very... It's created history, as John Howard had reduced the age from 16 to new parents in 2006. So that is like... Uh, more than 10 years ago, which is like pretty significant. And then Julie Gillard had reduced it for all parents in 2012. So six years later, Julie Gillard had reduced it. People have been campaigning, campaigning, many years of advocacy and campaigning. As like, it's been, single parents have been wanting this for ages. They've been calling to the government and saying, when are you going to do this? And then suddenly on Tuesday night, the federal government announced it and single parents are now quite happy. They're very happy as they will not have to even reapply so it's more easy for them so then they don't have to worry about putting food on the table. The current base is over $900 a fortnight and it is pretty, that is a good substantial amount. As like Cassandra Goldie, the CEO of ACOS had said like we welcome we welcome restoring the parenting payment for 57,000 single parents whose youngest child is 13 or younger. He said people are quite happy with the federal government's announcement. They've been calling out, for, single parents have been calling out it for so long and then finally the government have done it. That was Declan Evans reporting. Head to sin.org.au forward slash news to keep up with the latest updates. The budget also focused on energy, with the federal government announcing a $2 billion investment in green hydrogen production. This comes as the government tries to catch up to its 43% emissions reduction target, which it fell behind on in December. Treasurer Jim Chalmers said that the Hydrogen Head Start program will provide opportunities to regional industrial centres. Hydrogen power means Wollongong, Gladstone and Wyala can make and export everything from renewable energy to green steel. Seizing these kinds of industrial and economic opportunities will be the biggest driver and determinant of our future prosperity. The government is making the biggest ever investment in Australia's energy transformation.
The initiative aims to support two to three flagship projects which are yet to be announced. Vince Treese reports. It's a lot of money, it's a lot of money, but it, it, it's probably a small amount of money um, in comparison to what is coming down the pipeline. And, and essentially what they're investing in is green hydrogen. So green hydrogen is uh, hydrogen created by renewable energies, the release of absolutely no CO2. So it's created by two tubes. There's a positive and a negative charge in each tube, and it splits the H2O molecule into just hydrogen and oxygen and so one tube is full of hydrogen the other is full of oxygen and it's quite a simple process because the all it needs is electricity and water and so what they're doing now is uh, is investing in infrastructure that's quite it's a lot bigger than that obviously they're quite big uh, hydrogen generators and then and the, and the power is coming from renewable sources so wind solar uh, and hydro, I think that's uh, where, where they're predominantly getting this uh, green energy from. And then they're generating the hydrogen and it will most likely go into things like uh, fuel cells for cars. So looking at running cars on either a mix of uh, like a hybrid, it's like hydrogen, electricity and petrol. Or they will also do um, use hydrogen like they use gases for your home, so in your oven and your heaters and that kind of thing. The Fortescue Metals Group, um, owned by Andrew Forrest, so his company's investing, and they're probably going to get a bit of a proportion of the money. They, there's, that's not that's just allegedly. They're not sure as to where the money's going yet, but he he's investing in the hydrogen sphere. So there'll be a lot of money going towards hydrogen and the development of hydrogen in Australia. It's looking to be yeah a growing field in the years to come. That was Vince Treese for Panorama, airing 4 p.m. Thursdays on Sin. Warren Mundine and Jacinta Price have merged their separate campaigns against the voice to parliament as the referendum nears. The new Australians for Unity campaign comes just three weeks after Mundine fronted an ad for his own independent initiative. Now the pair face a strengthening yes side, with Patrick Johnson announcing the Australian Olympic Committee will back the cause. This is a historical moment, not only for the Australian Olympic Committee, but also for everyone involved from the athletes to what represents sport in this country. The joint no campaign is expected to centre Indigenous and migrant Australians who oppose the voice to Parliament. Lizzie Thompson reports. Senator Jacinta Nampajimpa-Price and former politician Warren Mundine have each previously campaigned against the voice to Parliament. However, it now seems that they have decided to join their powers, announcing today that they will be launching a new joint campaign called Australians for Unity. Their voices alone hold a lot of weight in the debate, as they are both Indigenous Australians. Interestingly, this merge comes after Price's previous uh, Recognise a Better Way campaign. Uh, That campaign received a conditional deductible gift receipt, or a DGR, allowing its supporters to make tax-deductible donations. Its DGR status was awarded in this year's federal budget, and it's possible that the merger comes with the hope... Um, to share that DGR status with a stronger, unified no campaign. Jacinta Nampajimpa-Price, she famously said, we don't need a voice, we need ears. There are already 11 Indigenous members of Parliament and they have an authoritative voice, whereas this voice to Parliament would have less authority. Warren Mundine's argument, his fear is that creating this voice to Parliament is going to have quite a monolithic voice, almost like a Canberra voice. Indigenous people are not all one people they don't all think the same way and 
you know, if you're only getting two representatives from Queensland, for example, that's a really big state. There's lots of different communities there, lots of different groups who, yeah, again, don't all have one voice, don't all have one way of thinking, and it's kind of feeding into this idea that Indigenous people are all the same and all think the same. That was Lizzie Thompson for Panorama, available on your preferred podcast platform. The state Liberal Party has voted to expel suspended MP Moira Deeming after she sought legal advice on leader John Pesciuto. A March vote saw Deeming suspended for speaking at a demonstration later attended by neo-Nazis, which Deeming claims is a smear on her character Pesciuto didn't do enough to deny. Federal Party leader Peter Dutton spoke to Radio National last week about his disappointment with the handling of the conflict. I wouldn't, I wouldn't rule out federal intervention and uh, I make it very clear to the Victorian division that I want this mess sorted out as quickly as possible. It's, it, hurts, it hurts the brand and that's why it needs to be sorted out. It needs to be mediated so that they can get back to their core business of putting pressure and a spotlight on a corrupt government. Dimming said she didn't intend to sue Pesciuto last week, but served him a defamation concerns notice the night before the vote. Freddie Moffat explains how we got here. Deeming was originally suspended in March for nine months after attending an anti-trans rally which was gate-crashed by neo-Nazis. Sounds like the start to a really bad joke. (laughs) Pesciuto originally tried to expel her entirely, but he was convinced by his colleagues not to. She didn't break any rules by attending the rally, but the link was sort of seen as very damaging to the Liberal Party where John Pesciuto is trying to transition the Victorian Liberals into more of a centralist sort of stance because there's been worries it's going very right. So she was suspended in March. Fast forward to last Thursday, where Deeming demanded that Pesuto release a statement declaring that she is not a Nazi sympathiser and to lift her nine-month suspension, or she threatened legal action. Now, she was she's demanding this, hey, make sure everyone knows I'm not a Nazi sympathiser, because there was a <laughs> dossier passed out back in March that apparently, according to her, insinuated that she was. Um, The contents of that dossier is a bit disputed. Uh, Apparently it was made up of a lot of social media posts and a Wikipedia article. But um, Pesuto denied that she was ever called a Nazi sympathiser, and he has said numerous times in numerous press conferences that he doesn't think Deeming is a Nazi sympathiser. But she wants a media statement declaring this which is interesting, and apparently Pesuto agreed to this when she agreed to the nine-month suspension. It was like, hey, if you release this, I'll agree to the suspension. And apparently he agreed to that, but he's denying that as well. John Pesuto, who's actively been trying to transition this Victorian Liberal Party into more of the centre mm. uh, to align themselves with mainstream Australians, and he said, the Liberal Party I joined and am now honoured to lead must strive to represent all Victorians. Regardless of religious faith, race, sexual preference and identity, Victorians everywhere should know that the Liberal Party is inclusive and can be a voice to them. That was Freddie Moffat for Represent, available on your preferred podcast platform. You're listening to On The Beat from Sin Media's news team. Thanks for your company. We've got lots still to come. Keep up with the latest updates by listening live on Sin 90.7 FM or digital radio in Melbourne or Geelong. Or listen anytime online. Just visit sin.org.au or search Sin. That's S-Y-N on your preferred podcast platform. And let us know what you think about today's stories by messaging at Sin Media on the socials. Stay with us. Last weekend's Melbourne Writers' Festival saw authors converge on the city to showcase their work and the thought behind it. Ronnie Scott was one of those authors, sharing his sophomore novel, Shirley. 
He spoke to Loud and Queer's Liz Folders about the state of the Australian publishing industry. The the thing that's really good, I think, for all readers and all queer readers, and like you know, and I say all readers because ideally it's not just like queer readers reading queer writers and queer characters, but you know any reader who's interested in other voices and other lives, is that it's more and more, like, plural and diverse and, uh, like, not just diverse in terms of, like, demography, but in terms of, like, the kinds of queer writing that are done and, like, whether it's realistic or whether it's, like, sort of surreal or whether it's, you know, like, really tight and stylized and minimal or whether it's, like, really lavish and strange and you know, and like a throwback to the kind of thing that was written 200 years ago. I just love that it's not like you have to, you you kind of go out there and you find like the one queer book. It's everything is sort of part of a bigger, um, exciting circus, mess, whatever you want to call it. It's a good time to be a reader. How meaningful would you say that this is for like queer representation is in literature? Yeah. Well, very. Like, I think, um, I think... I just love the idea that uh, that if you're like if you're a curious reader and you want to like I don't know whether you're whether you're sort of intentionally going out and reading something as a as a way of thinking what kind of person will I be or what kind of life will I have or whether you're just kind of absorbing those ideas um, by osmosis the way that we do when we read something. Uh, you sort of don't know what you're going to find. Uh, and I think that that just means that as readers, like we're more open to chance and more open to broad experiences and broad ways of, of thinking and being. And that, to me, is, again, one of the things that's exciting about just writing and reading full stop. So would you say that queer writers are empowered to break into today's publishing industry? Yeah, I mean, the that's a good question. I think that definitely publishers today are really interested in where writers come from, right? Like, okay. they're interested, like, where are you writing from? Um, are you a queer writer? Um, are you, you know, like, what? It, basically, what is your, you know, what is your perspective and how does that inform the kind of story that you tell? And all kinds of publishers, I think, are really open, open to that and really interested in that, which wasn't the case, you know, or 30 years ago. Um, or it would be seen as an impediment to finding an audience, whereas today it's seen as a way of finding an audience. Um, on the other hand, like, publishing is, is difficult full stop. And whether it's, like, a moment where publishing is expanding a little bit or whether it's a moment where publishing is contracting a little bit... Um, yeah, it's a it's a difficult industry and so based in like chance and circumstance. I can imagine. I feel like a lot of the art industry is really, really hard to break into. Yeah, yes. People's fortunes change and, you know, what they like, it's always kind of hard to match up what it is that you want to do as a writer or an artist with what people will read um, or what people will publish. And that seems like a question that changes probably throughout an artist's whole career as well, right? Like, I think that for an artist starting out, uh, it's um, yeah, it, it's it's immensely challenging, and like I say, based in chance, um, what you know, whether you get published and how you get published, and then the question of what's a sustainable career is different again. So, what were some challenges that you faced um, writing and pitching your novels? Yeah, I, well, I tried so 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 many things before the adversary was published. Like, I tried, 
And I, and I was very, like, I was well-connected because I had done lots of freelancing and things like that. Um, so when I had a book, I had lots of publishers I could send it to. And in Australia, we have this kind of beautifully sized publishing industry because it's big enough that it's kind of viable and, you know, it can connect to readers and um, writers can get paid for their work. Like, not incredibly well, but they can get paid for their work. But it's small enough that you can send things directly to publishers. Like, some writers have agents and some don't. Um, so I could send a book to, to publishers when I was done with it but I didn't know what I was doing um, and I tried to like I tried to pitch a biography I tried to pitch a book of essays I wrote a full young adult novel okay. um, that an editor was like are you sure this is, is number one this is not very good and we're not going to publish it but number two are you sure that you're a young adult writer <laughs> and I did that over five or six years and sometimes that's like a complete manuscript and sometimes it's a just a book proposal, which is still a pretty long thing that you spend a lot of time on. Five years is a long time. Yeah, and I like, yeah, and I think there was like a weird experimental novel that I tried writing that I couldn't get published, and so like the I think that the main challenge really was just figuring out what I actually wanted to say and how I was going to say it. And even then, when I look back at the adversary now, like I'm proud of that book, but it's so clear to me and probably to readers that I'm working out what I'm trying to do. So. Yeah, I think, I don't know, any art practice, I think it's worth seeing it as an apprenticeship. Like, if you if I'm doing it in 30 years' time, I still hope that I'm learning stuff and that the evidence and traces of learning as you go and working it out as you go are part of the writing. What would you say makes a good story? What do you think makes a good story? Oh, no. <laughs> no, don't turn this on me. I, I guess, like, for me, I, I really like when stories, like, inspire people mm -hmm. or when they kind of give different perspectives that people can live vicariously through. Yeah. I'm not a big writer, but I do make media. And I think that's something that I've wanted to bring across as a creative, the ability to give somebody else a new perspective through my work. Excellent. Yeah, I mean, I think that's an ideal, like that would, that's an amazing thing for a story to do. I think, um, I think that, the, the, well, I'm going to give you a bad answer. That's is that fine. okay? <laughs> no answer is a bad answer. But it's, the, but it's the true answer, in my opinion. It's that different, um, I mean, different pieces of art do different things. True. And I think that it's partly about like, telling you know like setting a setting a contract or an agreement with a reader at the start and then like here's the tricky part like either fulfilling it in this satisfying way or like subverting and surprising in a satisfying way and i think that what i love about going into a piece of writing is that you know you read the first few paragraphs and you're like okay this is like this is the agreement this is the kind of story it's going to be and you still sort of don't know whether the satisfaction will be in fulfilling it or surprising you and so yeah, I, but, but it has to do one or the other. So I think you have lots of options as a writer. And I think that the outcome of that is that it can be like, you know, sharing an experience or inspiring. Um, and I think that that's a pretty ideal scenario. That was writer Ronnie Scott. Catch the full interview on the Loud and Queer Talks podcast. King Charles and his queen consort Camilla were crowned in the UK over the weekend. The scaled-back ceremony saw a quarter of the audience and a reduced length compared to Queen Elizabeth's coronation 70 years ago. Australian Republican Movement co-chair Craig Foster told Good Weekend Talks the coronation was an inflection point in Australia's relationship with the Crown. It shouldn't really matter whether it's Elizabeth or Charles or indeed William or Harry or anyone else, whoever's in that position. It's the position itself that Australia needs to and I think is undergoing a reassessment and starting to consider 
more much more deeply and in a more nuanced fashion um, the complexity of the British Crown and Australian history. Notable Aussies attending the ceremony included the Prime Minister, the Government General and a rural student invited by the Prince's Trust. Naya Barnes reports. It's a Christian ceremony at its core. It occurs at Westminster Abbey in London and it has remained relatively the same for more than a thousand years. It happens uh, more than, or just, sorry, just less than nine months since the late Queen Elizabeth II passed because they don't want to be celebrating too close to the time, the actual time of a session when mm. she passed away. Um, Australia was represented by a lot of people. We had, of course, our Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, and our Governor-General um, and their partners. We had Australian singer-songwriter Nick Cave. We had mm. soccer star Sam Kerr, among others, um, and they're chosen as you know uh, world leaders and people who represent Australia uh, well in in the global field. Um, and they got to dress up and wear fascinators, which <laughs> I'm just a little bit jealous of the dressing up bit. Um, buildings across Australia, including Parliament House, Admiralty House, and Flinders Street Station, were lit up in royal purple, and there was uh, weather permitting a 21-gun salute on these steps of Parliament House. Um, and there's a new coronation emoji on Twitter which I thought was fun, and a gift of $10,000 to the Australian charity Friends of the Western Ground Parrot was given on behalf of Australia, as we have heard that um, uh, King Charles is is invested in the environment and wildlife. Mm. However, every time something particularly big happens with the monarchy, Queen's death or this, um, even weddings, I think it must have been around, but I was pretty young when the weddings happened, um, there's talk of should we still... Be part of this whilst it is you know to, to a certain extent it is a special celebration it's like less than 15 percent of australians are um over the age of 70 so most of australians this is the first coronation it's the first experience of a coronation so there is something something special in that that was naya barnes for represent on the socials at sin represent new reporting from core logic shows the rental crisis is worsening as prices continue to rise faster than wages Melbourne was previously Australia's most affordable city to rent in, but has lost the title to Adelaide in the latest numbers. Brisbane Greens MP Max Chandler-Mather criticised the government's lack of action on rental affordability after the budget. What sort of government is it that can't guarantee a cent, a single cent, for public and affordable housing, but can guarantee $254 billion for everyone in this place to get $9,000 extra a year on tax. They can guarantee $41 billion for fossil fuel subsidies. They can guarantee $16 billion in tax concessions for property investors, but they can't guarantee a cent for public and affordable housing in the middle of the worst housing crisis we have seen in generations. The Greens joined the coalition to vote down Labor's Housing Future Fund this week. Ruby Littler reports. So CoreLogic is a property analysis firm and they've compiled this data and it's, they've said it's the highest increase that's ever been recorded. Cities like Perth and Sydney have seen the largest rental increases at over 13%. And on a more area basis, Melbourne CBD comes in second highest with an average increase of 24.4%. A couple reasons seem to be rising interest rates and so they're 
put out there by the RBA supposedly to help curb inflation, but then that sees landlords pass the extra amount charged on their repayments to tenants. And then you've got first homeowners who are locked out of the housing market because they're unable to afford homes, so then they continue renting, which clogs up the renting system even more. And then there's returning migrant workers and international students coming back to university, opening Australia up again, and they also need rental accommodation in Australia. And then it's just a, it comes down to a classic case of supply and demand and where we've got a historically tight vacancy rate at the moment, which means people are forced to deal with these costs. There's no other alternative. That was Ruby Littler for Panorama on the socials at Panorama Sin. Missing Tasmanian teenager Cheyenne Lee Tatnell is yet to be found after disappearing two weeks ago. The 14-year-old lived in youth accommodation and was last seen on her way to a friend's house in Launceston but never arrived. Police Commander Kate Chambers led a renewed community search on Thursday. We have a number of volunteers here today to come and contribute to what is a real community push um, to have a good outcome. If anyone out there has any information, if Cheyenne can hear me, please, you're not in any trouble, please come forward. This week, police found items of interest in the search for Tatnall and said they did not suspect foul play in her disappearance. Lizzie Thompson reports. The 14-year-old was last seen around Henry Street in Launceston on her way to a friend's house, but she never arrived. For operational reasons, few community members have previously been able to engage in the search, but um, as of today, 20 civilians um, went out in line searches. Um, Cheyenne Lee was living in a youth accommodation at the time and is described as having blonde hair, slim build and is approximately 160 centimetres tall. So if you're listening in Tasmania and you happen to see someone with that description, please do contact police. There were quite a few quotes um, from her grandmother um, speaking about how she was a really sweet, shy girl, not street savvy. Staff at the youth accommodation were the ones who alerted the police to her absence to the fact that she was missing so they're going to do line searches which is the one where they all walk in a line and literally just walk through the bush looking for anything like a hair tie a toenail a gum wrapper it could be the smallest thing um that can lead police to her all right well we are keeping our hopes up for Cheyenne Lee Tatnell here Mm -hmm. at Panorama that was Lizzie Thompson for Panorama available on your preferred podcast platform if you have information called 131444 and if that story impacted you, please call Lifeline on 131114. A group of researchers have discovered evidence of microbes digesting plastic at cooler temperatures than previously possible. Certain microbes were found to disintegrate 56% of biodegradable plastic in a controlled environment. Study co-author Michael Sanders spoke at a European Union science panel last year. We feel strongly that there are already mechanisms in place. The waste hierarchy was already addressed, uh, meaning reduce, reuse, recycle whenever possible. These should have priorities. So we cannot expect biodegradable plastics to address the global plastic pollution problem. That is not the case. Without the microbes, plastic can take up to 500 years to disintegrate. Sura Mishra reports. A research published in the Frontiers in Microbiology shows that... uh, scientists have discovered that certain microbes can digest or disintegrate plastic at cooler temperatures. We have already had some microbes that can uh, disintegrate or digest plastics, but these guys took a lot higher temperatures to work, like over 30 degrees. This is technology and infrastructure that takes a lot of effort and money into constructing. So if you could potentially do it at lower temperature, hey man, Mm. it's a win. (laughs) 
plastic plastic still remains what it is it's very very hard to get rid of it's very hard to disintegrate but biodegradable plastic which usually uh, takes around uh, from a few weeks to a few months to disintegrate can be done just be left to disintegrate now you wouldn't have to put it through the specialized process of uh, disintegrating it through you know in higher temperatures this is so far into the future though yeah. like seriously like so so far into the future but we're starting the research so that's something that was Sura Mishra for Panorama on the socials at Panorama Sin Ballarat drivers will trial digital licenses from July as the state government gears up to rework the system the digital licenses add real-time updates and on-the-spot verification and may go statewide from 2024 Deputy Shadow Leader David Southwick expressed bipartisan support for the move which he says is overdue let's just get on with it let's do it New South Wales have had digital driver's licence for four years. It's one less thing that, that uh, the public sector has to do and provide. A digital driving licence should cut costs. Digital licences won't be made available for drivers with L or P plates who can't touch their phones while their car engines are on. Lachlan Patrick reports. This has been announced ahead of a statewide rollout of digital licences to bring Victoria into line with New South Wales, where 4.4 million people have digital licences. That's 75% of drivers north of the border. So some say it's a little bit long overdue for Mm -hmm. Victoria, but we've got this statewide rollout coming in 2024, the trial later this year in Ballarat of this new system. The two key features here that the government is really touting is one, the driver's licence can change instantly. It's digital, so it's a living document. That means that if you move house or your data gets leaked by Optus or Medicare and you need a new driver's licence number, that can change very quickly. Instead of having to order a new card, waiting a long time, it'll happen. What that also means is that your licence details can also instantly change in terms of the validity. So if your licence gets suspended, there's no way to really tell. The card looks the same. Now, if you've got a digital licence... It's going to say it's going to have a big X and it'll go, this person can't drive. So bad drivers probably won't like this change right now. It's not expected Mm. to be mandatory, so they probably just switch to their physical licences. But this isn't for everyone. So drivers on their L plates or their P plates, well, they're not allowed to touch their phones while the car engine's running anyway. They will still retain the physical cards as well as, you know, people who want to keep them. But... Digital licences, that's just the start, because I got a text Mm. from Deputy Liberal Leader David Southwick this morning, not to me personally, I'm not that important yet, (laughs) but he was trying to take credit for this this change, (laughs) Uh saying after years of Liberal advocacy, digital driver's licences will soon be available in Victoria, and he's going to continue pushing for digital MyKeys. The MyKey contract is coming up for tender, and that's Mm. going to be announced very soon. That was Lachlan Patrick for Represent, airing 5pm Tuesdays on SIN. This has been On The Beat from SIN's media news team. Thanks for your company. I'm V. And I'm Nick. To keep up with the latest news updates, follow at SIN Media on the socials. If you missed anything, visit sin.org.au to catch up or search SYN on your preferred podcast platform. And don't forget to tune in next time by listening live on SIN 90.7 FM or digital radio in Melbourne or Geelong. Oh, 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 oh